Bibles and turn to John chapter 19. John chapter 19 this afternoon as we get into uh, the second part of the kingdom. The hour has come, the kingdom. <clears throat> John chapter 19. Back in December the 7th, 1941, the Japanese armed forces bombed the U.S. naval base at Pearl Harbor, Hawaii. President Roosevelt delivered a radio address. Some of you probably remember that. I don't. But a radio address the next day that uh, described the event as a day that will live in infamy. Those were famous words that uh, have gone on uh, to describe that day. Webster's Dictionary describes infamy as disgrace, dishonor, great wickedness. Now there's no one who will deny that what the Japanese did that day was an act of extreme great wickedness. In fact, it led to the deaths of hundreds of thousands of soldiers all over the South Pacific. And I heard, have heard that the assassination of President Kennedy described as an infamous day in the history of our nation. I do remember that day. But that may very well be uh, the case. And yet I would like to take you back to a time, uh, to a day 2,000 years ago or so that will forever stand as probably the most infamous day in the history of humanity. And on that day, the creature took steps to kill the Creator. And on that day, mankind raised his rebellious fist against the Almighty. And on that day, the darling Son of God became the Lamb slain from the foundations of the world. And the day Jesus Christ was crucified is the most infamous day in the history of the world. And this afternoon, I want us to see Jesus as the crucified King. I want us to remember what he endured and to provide salvation for sinners. Today I want us to look at the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, as he died for you and for me. Today I would like us to take a fresh look at Calvary and the events that took place that day. I want us to see just how much this man Jesus loves you and he loves me. I want us to see what he was willing to endure for our sake. I want us to see how his death on the cross can become the means of our salvation if someone here does not know him and what this means to you if you are saved. Now, we're looking generally at chapter 19. We're not going to go down verse by verse in a sense, but we'll look, look at it more in detail at another time. But as we continue to think of the Lord Jesus as our prophet, our priest, and our king, I want you to notice, first of all, the king condemned. The king condemned. There are several groups that were involved in the rejection and the condemnation of the king on that infamous and awful day. And we want to take a moment to consider those who were directly involved in the death of the king of kings. Notice, first of all, the ruthless men. The ruthless men. 
In verse 1 it says, Then Pilate therefore took Jesus and scourged him, and the soldiers platted a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and they put it on him, put on him a purple robe, and they said, Hail, King of the Jews, and they smote him with their hands. <clears throat> these verses tell us that these were hardened men who took Jesus, scourged him, mocked him, placed a crown of thorns upon his head, treated him cruelly. And these were some of the same men who would later take the Lord Jesus to Calvary, nail him to the cross, gamble over his garments as he died for their sin. These men were directly responsible for the death of Jesus Christ. Secondly, there were the religious men. We see this in verses 4 through 7, and then down in verse 15. But in verse 4 it says, Pilate therefore went forth again and saith unto them, Behold, I bring him forth to you, that you may know that I find no fault in him. Then came Jesus forth, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, And Pilate saith unto them, Behold the man. When the chief priests therefore and the officers saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate saith unto him, Take ye him and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. And the Jews answered him, We have a law, and by our law he ought to die, because he made himself the Son of God. The chief priests and scribes were involved in the death of Jesus in that they arrested, they accused, they condemned him under false charges. These same men would later walk by the cross and they would mock Jesus as he died. These men were directly responsible for the death of Christ. Thirdly, we come to the ruling men. This is verses 6 through 16, which I'll not take time to read, but... Here we have described for us both Pilate and Herod who were guilty of ignoring what they knew to be true about Jesus. It would appear from the story that Pilate tried everything short of bravery to get Jesus released. But be that as it may, these men had the power and the ability to set Jesus at liberty, yet they chose to let him die. And so they also would be directly responsible for the death of the Lord Jesus. And then there's the rebellious man. Go down to verse 18. It says, Where they crucified him, the two other with him on either side, and Jesus in the midst. The Bible tells us that Jesus was crucified between two thieves. The Bible also tells us that these men ridiculed Jesus and rejected him vocally that day. Now, yes, one of the thieves came to Jesus later in the sense that he uh, asked the Lord to remember him. Yet they were both directly responsible for the death of Jesus Christ. And then we have the riotous men. Here I want to just go back to the book of Luke. Luke chapter 23 and verses 21 through 23. And I want us to notice here the riotous men. It says, They cried, saying, Crucify him, crucify him. And he said unto them the third time, Why? 
What evil hath he done? I have found no cause of death in him. I will therefore chastise him and let him go. And they were instant with loud voices requiring that he might be crucified and the voices of them and of the chief priests prevailed. You see, among those who rejected Jesus on that day were the crowds that were gathered in Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. Without a doubt, some of these people are the same ones who lined up along the road into the city just a few days before, had hailed him as their coming king. Now they stand with their leaders and they call for the blood of an innocent Messiah. These people are directly responsible for the king, death of the king. And then we have all regular men. Lest we be quick to condemn those who condemned the Lord, the ruthless men, the right, uh, the rebellious men, the re- ruling men, the re- uh, religious men, the riotous men. We need to take a step back and look at the real reason that Jesus came to the cross. Why did he go? Well, he went there because all men, all are sinners and stand in need of a Savior. Now, when Jesus went to the cross, he was dying for the sins of humanity. When Jesus went to the cross, he literally became sin for you and me. And since that is true, then you and I are responsible for the condemnation of the king. Why did the cross happen? It was because of you and me. The king was crucified and it was my fault. So we find here the king condemned. Secondly, we find the king crucified. Now, the verses here in chapter 19 are going to give us a brief account of the time that Jesus spent on the cross at Calvary. John doesn't give us the detail that the other gospel writers, but this account is vivid enough to give us some insight into that day when Jesus died for humanity. So first of all, we find the pain of the cross. Now, I'm sure that Somewhere along the line, many of us have heard a description. Some have given a very medical description of what took place. Some have given a very vivid picture. And I, I don't want to try to uh, improve on that necessarily. But I just want to remind us here, again, it says in verse 18, they crucified him. Crucifixion was a terrible way to die. We need to realize just what he suffered. And can we imagine, and it's hard to even imagine, but if you imagine the long iron spikes driven through your hands and your feet, can you imagine hanging on a cross for six hours after you've been beaten and whipped? We can't even begin to comprehend the pain that Jesus endured on the cross that day to atone for the sins of man. In fact... Crucifixion is widely regarded as the most horrible form of execution ever devised by man. When a person was nailed to the cross, the nails would come in contact with the media nerve that runs through the forearms and into the hands. This would irritate this nerve and cause the body to go into violent spasms, which would result in the body being slammed into an upright wood wood of the cross. 
And also the body would sag due to the fatigue and weakness in the limbs, and this collapsing body would result in the chest muscles preventing the lungs from expanding. And the only way a condemned man could breathe would be for them to push against the nails on his feet or pull against the nails in his hands. And this action would raise him up and allow his lung, uh, him to fill his lungs. This would have to be repeated every time a breath was taken. Eventually the body would be so weak from the influence, the combined influence of gangrene and blood loss and dehydration and exhaustion that the victim would be unable to lift his body and would suffocate. Yes, Jesus Christ died a horrible death, a painful death, a death unspeakably cruel and vile. Why? Because of you and me. That's the pain of the cross. But he also knows the purpose of the cross. When we think of the death endured for us on the cross, the question comes to why would he do this? And the reason is very simple and straightforward. Jesus died the death he did. He suffered the agony he did. He endured the pain of suffering that he did. And he did so that he might manifest the love of God to lost sinners. And he might pay the price for our sin. Why did he go to Calvary? He went to the cross so that you would not have to go to hell. And that brings us to the primacy of the cross. And there seems to be a movement afoot today that would take down the cross, undermine the necessity of the blood atonement for sins. There are churches and preachers who don't want anything to do with blood. They won't preach about it. They won't sing about it. Uh, They'll take it completely out of their their vocabulary in regard to their preaching. And yet, try as they might, men never take away the need for the cross. In fact, what the world calls foolish is called powerful and necessary by the Lord. Man may try to sanitize the gospel, try to make it more appealing to the lost world, but when the blood of Jesus and his agony on the cross is taken away from the gospel message, there is no gospel. There's only some religious message that doesn't have the power to save one sinner from an eternal hell. Let the world take what it will. I'll take the old rugged cross and the blood of Jesus that was shed there in payment for my sins. So we have the king condemned. We have the king crucified. And thirdly, the king conquering. And we talk about the king conquering. We notice here in this passage that... There was a cry. Notice the cry. After six hours on the cross, Jesus had spoken a few times already, yet when he was about to give up his spirit in the hands of death, Jesus makes this cry. It is finished. Verse 30. 
When Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up the ghost. Now I want you to know, notice this distinction. Jesus did not say, I am finished. That's probably what we would have said. I've had it. I'm finished. Jesus didn't say that. This was not a cry of a defeated man. This was a cry of a victor. This is the cry of one who paid the price and finished the work he came to do. It's a very vivid, expressive word here. It's actually one word. It is finished. And understanding how it was used in that day may help us to better grasp what Jesus said when he said, it is finished. It was a servant's word. When a servant finished his task, it was finished. And so a servant knew what this word meant. Secondly, it was a priest's word. It was used when sacrificial animal was examined and found worthy. It was a word that was used to describe that particular work. We also find it was a farmer's word. When an animal was born, it was a perfect specimen. They had to have a perfect lamb for the sacrifice. And when that lamb was born, it was born to a farmer or someone who would be caring for the animals. He had to have the perfect lamb. Of course, Jesus Christ was the perfect lamb of God. But it was also an artist word. It was used when an artist had applied the finishing touches to a masterpiece. It meant that nothing more could be done to make it better. Now I know a little bit about painting pictures and so forth. And sometimes you just think, well, this needs something else, you know. (laughs) And finally you get to the point where you say, nope, that's it. It's finished. It's finished. It's an artist's word. But it was also a merchant's word. It was used when a merchant and a customer had haggled over a price and had reached the price that was acceptable to both. and implied that the haggling was over, the deal was struck, everyone involved was fully satisfied. It is finished. And so here's the cry that Jesus makes. It was a very familiar cry, a cry that many people would understand what it meant. When Jesus made this cry, he was telling us that the price had been paid. Salvation had been finished. God was satisfied with the price that had been paid. So in the king conquering, the cry, secondly, is the completion. For Jesus uttered this cry, he died and was taken down from the cross. He was buried. And please understand that when Jesus went to the cross, it was absolutely necessary for him to die. All this uh, theorizing about, well, he didn't really die, he just kind of passed out. No, he had to die. If he hadn't died, sin would have never been paid for. It would never have been finished. After all, the wages of sin is and will ever be death. People think the cross is bloody, and they're right. It is bloody, but you cannot be saved without the shedding of blood. And so that brings us to the continuation. 
I don't think it's really a good thing to ever preach a message about the crucifixion and leave Jesus hanging there on the cross. (laughs) I hate to do that. Because the good news is that three days later, after he had died, he rose from the dead. He did did so to pay for our sins. He arose to provide for our justification. And greatest words in the Bible are probably found in Matthew 28 and verse 6. Matthew 28 and verse 6. It says, He is not here. For he is risen. And he said, come, see the place where the Lord lay. The fact that Jesus is risen is what sets Christianity apart from the rest of the world's religions. Ours is a living faith in a living Lord. Jesus is alive. And so everyone who places their faith in him for salvation. And so I'm thankful today. For Jesus, the crucified King. I'm thankful that he was willing to suffer what he did so that we might be saved. And that's what we're going to do in a few moments in remembering Jesus' death on the cross. By coming to the Lord's table. We do this because God commanded it. And uh, we do it because we want to remember what Jesus did for us. There's one thing that we should be focused on, it's Jesus Christ. There's a lot of other things going on in this world. Not only in politics, not only in in the business world, the economic world, the physical world of the floods and so forth in, in the south. A lot of things going on. But one thing we need to focus on is the Lord Jesus Christ. Because no matter what else happens in this world, that's the most important thing. And so we come today, I trust, willing to focus on what Jesus did for us. And by focusing on what Jesus did for us, I think, as we often sometimes call this, communion. Which is also a word that means union. It should unify us around Christ. And that's the most important thing to do. And so, as the men come, I trust that we'll bow our heads, preparing our hearts to partake of this uh, table this afternoon. We know the Lord. We've been obedient to the Lord in baptism, we know the Lord Jesus Christ is our Savior, then we can come and partake.